This is Transistor.fm. And welcome back to the Product People Podcast. Justin Jackson here. If you want to get me on Twitter, I'm the letter M, the letter I, Justin, M-I, Justin. So glad to be back again. We've been pretty consistent with publishing these mega profitable case studies. Again, if you want them to be emailed to you, go to megamaker.co slash profit, and I will send you the previous case studies. These have graphs, revenue, expenses, and profit numbers for people like Nick DeSabato, Brennan Dunn, and this week, Natalie Nigelli from Wildbit. And she got right into the history of Wildbit, how they started as a uh, web development agency building Flash websites for nightclubs and eventually built the product empire that they have today. It's really great. You're going to enjoy it. Let's get into that conversation. Natalie, tell me about your business and how it started uh, and what kind of business you're in. Like, what does your product do? Sure. So I run Wildbit, which is a software company. Uh, we build, we have our own products. So Wildbit is kind of a company. And then we have three products going on four um, that help other software developers and designers do their work better or enjoy their work better. And so we have a product that turns 10 this year called Beanstalk, which is uh, Git hosting and deployments, uh, kind of like a collaboration workflow for development, te- development teams. We have a, a email product called Postmark that sends transactional emails for apps. So things like password reset emails, welcome emails, that kind of stuff. We have a little deployment robot called DeployBot that helps you ship your code from anywhere. So if you're hosted with GitHub or Bitbucket or whatever, and then we have a fourth product on the way that is in private beta right now called Conveyor, conveyor.com. Uh, and that is our kind of reimagined beanstalk if we were solving that problem today, uh, what it look like. And so after 10 years, we think that problem would be a little bit different. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, we are trying to do it better. So that's our kind of new new iteration. That's, that's awesome. Now, so you started beanstalk 10 years ago. Yes, but the company's seventeen years old. Okay, what were you get, what were you doing before that? So, so yeah, so Chris started. So I, I ran the company with my husband Chris, um, and he started the business doing consulting work. Okay, uh, started with like flash, awesome flash websites for nightclubs. It was brilliant, beautiful work, <laughs> beautiful. Okay, this is a piece um, of history that I did not know. I oh yeah, it's a great history. Is this on the Wild Bit About yeah. page? I'm going to check right now. I want to. I want to no, see. I <laughs> flash. I mean, I'm sure there's flash nightclubs. Yeah, and like, um, yeah. There's a lot of it's a, it's a fun history. I mean, we like when I met Chris, he had been doing it for three years, so we didn't have products yet. But we we, we were doing a lot of client work. We moved on, graduated from like flash nightclub brochure sites to, to building social networks. We were doing that for a while. 
Really? So, um, yeah. And, and do it for customers, like for clients, the client work and built some really great social networks for other clients. Well, that was like a big thing. We actually, we wrote out a social network report that became like hugely popular. I mean, back in the day when that was like a big thing and people were trying to get in and, and create communities for their communities. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, eventually got into product. So we started, we were doing consulting. We actually had an email marketing service, uh, in, the early 2000s that we built for our clients mm-hmm. and uh, I guess New- Newsberry mid 2000s yeah Newsberry that um so that was our very first kind of foray into products and then uh that's no longer in existence and then Beanstalk we built because we were doing client work and Chris was managing SVN repositories and like hosting them locally you know trying to set permissions doing all this crap and it was really annoying and back then there really wasn't anything like there was CBS dude if you remember what CBS yeah yeah yeah, so we, we started asking friends. We were like, hey, would you let somebody, like, would you let me host your source code and, like, we'll manage it for you? And they're like, no, you're crazy. I'm never letting you touch my source code. And Chris was like, whatever, we'll just try it. And so we did. We just tried it. And that's kind of how we got into products. And so we launched this thing um, and just kept doing client work on the side. And basically the plan was always that we would never fire anybody. So we needed Beanstalk to make enough money so that everybody who was working on client work would just, we, it would support all of us, right? So we were able to migrate to to all all hands on beanstalk there's actually a few things i wanted to dig into there uh three things yeah first of all what gave you the imagination for products in the first place like how did you you're running a consulting agency how did you even know that that was a thing that that was you know possible and products were starting to become a thing right Basecamp was a thing um you know, at that point, uh, MailChimp was a thing like, you know, so they, there were things, right? Like there was a very slow kind of, I was just saying to somebody like apps were launching monthly, but they were launching, right? So they weren't like, it wasn't hourly like it is today, but yeah. there was this sense of like, we can productize and create recurring revenue. I don't think we all maybe necessarily saw it for kind of the massive kind of capital efficiency that it is now and things like that. But there was this thing like we could build a recurring product mm-hmm. like others were doing. So I think we just kind of knew it was this thing that we could do. Yeah. And why this philosophy? Where did this philosophy of never fire anyone come from? Oh, I was just never fire anyone. <laughs> I don't know. I don't think it's like a philosophy. It was just like, I mean, it's like, it's just. I don't, I mean, I think we've always known. In the agency world, especially to maintain profitability, firing people is quite common. So I'm wondering why you were, why were you such deviants? Yeah. I mean, I I like the people I work with and, and, you know, I, uh, I don't think Chris and I would have ever, we never looked at Wildbit as existing for anything other than the team. I mean, I know I say this a lot and it's probably getting old, but like I always say like wild, but exists for the team. Like we're very product agnostic. And so, um, you know, it was like together we were building Beanstalk while allowing client work to kind of do its thing. And we were all really excited for the day we don't have to do client work anymore. Right. So it's Mm -hmm. like, it's like, you know, and so it was for all of us, like, how are we all going to like, let's do this, right. Let's get Beanstalk big enough so we don't have to do client work anymore. I mean, it became very much, the collective goal of the team. Yeah. So I don't, yeah. And and when did Beanstalk launch? 
So it'll be 10 years in October. Okay, so... Or it is October next week. So I, October, I forget the exact date, but 10, 10, uh, 10 years. 2007, October. So 2007, yeah. Um, Maybe November. And um, how much how much uh, revenue and profit did it make that first year? Like you're working on it on the side. Do you remember how much you made back then? No, I don't remember. It was enough. I, I don't. I, I honestly don't remember how much it was. Yeah, I know I borrowed money from his dad. So, because uh, just in case, we borrowed like we, we used to bill in weekly iterations. So we would bill everybody like for per person per per like, who they were hiring on our team per person per week. Yeah. And so I basically asked his dad for like twenty grand. Wow. Or however much it was, it was like, and I said like I'm only going to pull out every week what I would have done for consulting work just in case to just kind of bridge the gap and like I wouldn't touch the money like I put it in one account and then would transfer it like week by week like a crazy person and then we didn't use all the twenty and we you know paid it back like within two months or something like that but um yeah but I don't I don't remember revenue I don't. When did you get rid of Newsberry? This is my third question. Yeah. So there's a blog post that circulated the internet that people still ask me about at like random conferences um, that I, I don't remember the exact date. You could this probably is February it, but, uh, 20th, 2012, it, was, it says. That sounds about right. Yeah. Because my, uh, my, my oldest was like two. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. So at that point, we were, I think almost all, I mean, we were all in on, on, on uh, apps, like products. We had Postmark. Uh, yeah, we had Postmark and so we had Beanstalk and then Newsberry was kind of just sitting there. And the truth about Newsberry is like, we were never, we aren't good at building products or we've never really kind of spent enough time to be good at building products. We don't use ourselves. Mm-hmm. And at that point, it, like we're not, we're not marketers. Like that's, that's the antithesis of who we are. Like now we're getting better as a company and we've hired great people to help us there, but we were not those people. We never sent newsletters to our own customers. So we had a very skewed perspective of how that process should work and mm-hmm. we were very stubborn and and so like we were never good at building that product like it was a good product and people really loved it but it was a distraction it wasn't making enough money to 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 for the distraction it was causing and so we got to shut down so so part of that choice was and this is interesting this is one trend that's come up especially for folks that have that I've interviewed that have launched multiple things is one of the advantages to launching multiple things is you've got a bunch of horses in a race and you really can see the slow horse. And so it sounds like Newsberry was your slow horse. You're like compared to Beanstalk and Postmark, this this right. this thing isn't producing at all, right? Yeah, and I think you get to I mean, I'm really I love having multiple products and like I've talked to friends who, you know, are like you're crazy, you got to go all in on one of them or like you'll get much bigger if you focus, but Again, like for me, it's nice to kind of not to kind of hedge my bets a little bit and to kind of have things in, in multiple places. And um, they are all in different parts. They're like kids, right? Like they all have different needs. Like thankfully, they, they didn't launch four at the same time, but we're like, you know, all trying to just get the product market fit. And then all try, you know, like they're mm-hmm. all in different life cycles. And I think that was clear with Newsberry was like where it was to do anything bigger with it or to even just continue to grow it. And to support it, like we needed to have like more brain power in it. And it was either that or postmark and beans, you know, just it did, like we knew we weren't building a great product and we didn't want to use it. So it was like, you know, so yeah, I just, yeah. you're right. Like you can, you can see them all. And I like having multiple and, you know, luckily you get to choose what you work on. So, yeah. So Beanstalk launches in 2007. 
Mm-hmm. Postmark launches in 2010. 10, yes. And so what, between 2007 and 2010, I'm guessing Beanstalk grew quite a bit? Yeah. It was definitely making 100000 the first year. Because, well... I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't have them off the top of my head. I think, uh, I mean, by the time we shut it down, it had to have been making, or by the time we stopped doing consulting, it was definitely making way past a hundred thousand a year. I mean, we yeah. were doing consulting work. We were doing more than a million years in a million dollars a year in consulting work. So Beanstalk at that point was making a lot more than that. Um, but you're right. I think the funniest part about growth for starting any app is like, you have this, you have very unrealistic expectations about what's actually going to happen. And like, I clearly remember we had thousands of beta testers on Beanstalk. And when we turned on paid pricing, we sat, like, I'll never forget, we had this like Ikea desk and Chris and I sat there and we sent the email and we're like, yes, you can buy. And we were so excited. And we're like refreshing the admin and like nothing's happening. <laughs> and we're like, why aren't these people giving me their credit card? I don't understand. They love this product. This is so great. And we're like, refresh again, refresh again. I'm like, it's texting uh, Dima's like the developer. And I'm like, is it broken? He's like, no, Natalie, it's not broken. I'm like, well, why are you putting their credit cards? And then, you know, like hours later, the first one rolled in and you're like, yes. And, yeah. then, and you know, it's slowly, but we're postmark, like our first month when we launched, we hit like $10,000 that month or something crazy like that, which was huge. But again, you can't replicate it because we marketed it to our Beanstalk customers. I had an mm-hmm. audience, right. Who mm-hmm. clearly needed the product. Month two was not $10,000, but month one was like, yeah, you know, and so I don't, I think it, it varies from, from, exp- I don't expect conveyor to make a ton of money in the first year, you know, like I've projected it to make no money for the first year as we figure out what we're doing and all this stuff. But yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it varies. How, how big was the team in 2007? Like, are we talking about three people? Are uh, we talking about 10? No, 10. Wow. Okay. 10-ish in, in, in the, in the 10-ish. So the other, yeah. the other difference. You're asking me history questions. I don't have. Like I, kn- a I know. Timeline. It's okay. It's okay. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to so tease it okay. out of you. But the the other uh, unique thing about you folks is um, a lot of people start as solo founders or them and another person, and they're able to like profitability is. You know, we pulled in 150 grand, we paid out 50 grand in expenses, and then I paid myself 100 grand, right? We're, we're, that's profitable for a one-person shop. But when you have 10 people, that's a, that's a lot more expense that your, um, not your ceiling, your floor <laughs> becomes, you know, right. like, you got it. It's a, a much higher, right? Why do you think you were able to do that, actually, when so many other people agencies tried that and didn't, it didn't work. I think the, I, I thought about this a lot because I talked to a lot of agencies who are trying to do this. And I think the biggest difference and what I tell everybody is you have to dedicate a person Just start with one. Hmm. If you don't dedicate. And so we, when we hired, we, we basically said you get one, we're getting one and that person cannot do consulting. And it's not an option. Don't tease it. Don't cause you get addicted to that. Right. Mm-hmm. Because the biggest challenge is like, I can work on my product this week or I can bill $3,000 and it's like, what do I do? And we really committed to one person. And so we were like one person. It was Dima at the time. 
um, who's still a developer with us, uh, you know, still works with us, but he basically like, you don't get to do anything else. Like we're not, we're not gonna, we're not gonna like, you know, sell you out to like a, a, a client. Yeah. And so what that allowed us to do, and you know, it's hard, like we still need a designer who was doing client work. So like, you know, the, the, there were definitely resources that we needed and we used on Beanstalk that we did kind of still sell to, to clients, but you have to put a dedicated person because once you do that and once you promise yourself and you figure out the math, right. So that you can have that dedicated person, you can still survive off of consulting without that dedicated person. Now you're building something. Now there's value. Now that product only has to make enough money to cover their salary. It's like, mm-hmm. okay, cool. Now it covers their salary. Bring a second person in and a third. And I think you can gradually wean yourself off that way. But if you dedicate, what I see a lot of agencies do is like, they don't, they're like, they have this great idea and they want to like spare, spare cycles. And like, you don't have spare cycles, right? Because the minute, if you need those cycles to be profitable or, or whatever sustainable, then a client comes along once that cycle and you're like, okay, but I can't work on my product. I got to go back to the client. And then it never gets done. It never gets attention. It never gets iterated on. Yeah. And I think like you have to kind of, you got to commit. I don't know. Like, I don't, I think that's the, at least that's the only way I see it as, as having worked for us. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I, I have seen that pattern in other agencies too, because every agency since 37 signals has looked at that model and has said, that's the model. That's, that's the ticket. And um, it's, yeah, it's just, even, I've even seen, did you employ a similar strategy when launching new products? Cause I've seen single product teams try to launch another product and they fall into the same trap of they keep everybody on the same product. And it's just hard to get the next person working solely on this new thing. So with Postmark, we hired somebody completely separate because one of the things that we did for Postmark is the back end. Um, and that I think was convenient for us. The back end of Postmark was not built in Rails um, because of the email kind of mail sending piece. We chose a different a different uh, programming language, and so mm-hmm. we actually had to hire some specific. So we had the same situation. We hired a dedicated person to build out Postmark, and they built it out in three months. And then, you know, you start. You know, the, our design resources were always the ones that we we have a very small design team, and so like, like the design resources are always kind of like passed around. Yeah, but we did the same thing with that. And then DeployBot, you're right. That was probably the closest to that scenario where we're kind of like, ah, we can we can spin out deployment tools and create a new product, but who's going to work on it? Well, the person is working on Beanstalk, so how do you do that without you? Know? And that I think that became a unique scenario where um, that team basically said, like, we just want to try it. We're going to do it on nights and weekends for a couple of weeks and see what we can do. And so they kind of spun it out themselves. Interesting. Do you have? Um, you know, one of the things that I did when I was running teams is when I had to quickly budget for a team member, I'd always uh, add 30% to their salary. And that was kind of how I figured out the expense. Is that, do you have a similar trick? Is that sound about right? About 1.3 times salary is kind of, and then if you multiply that across the whole team, you'd get about your expenses or do you have a different trick? I don't think I use a trick anymore. We're too many people. Like I, I plug it into like an actual spreadsheet and okay. put like payroll tax and healthcare. And so like, I don't, I'm trying to think of what I did back in the day before it was a little bit more organized. And I have people to help me now with doing the, the finances too mm-hmm. and stuff like that. But, um, I, uh, I think, 
you're probably right. It's somewhere around 30%. I mean, we pay hundred percent benefits. So for us, it's like their salary, their, their payroll tax or benefits. Mm. And then I don't really have a good formula for anything other than that. You know, like, yeah. I don't know what retreats cost us per person, you know, when we add a person, I don't know what, like, yeah. you know, I guess I could think office bill down stuff like that, but that just kind of lives in like a, you know, I don't know what lunch costs us when we hire an extra person. Philly. Like, I don't think that way, but I, you know, from a, from a quick, like, what's going to really hit the bottom line and that's going to be that's basically salary and their payroll tax and, and health yeah. insurance. I think the history is important because there's different folks listening to this. There's some people that have, they're already started. They have products out in the world and uh, their problem is they're not that profitable. They're at break even. They're maybe making 5% margins and um, there's, they're really not making a good return on their business yet. There's no, um, there's not a lot of cash accumulating in the business account. And I'm, I started in 2016. And so that's me, basically. I'm, you know, I'm pulling out dividends and salary, but there's not a good, like, chunk of cash kind of growing in the business that I could invest in growth or something else. There's folks before that that, you know, they, haven't launched, they've launched something that maybe has revenue, but it's not even close to break even. Um, and they're kind of at the beginning stage, maybe where you were at back in 2007, although that was a pretty good launch. Um, you obviously had hit a nerve. We definitely. Yes. Yeah. And it was a different time, right? Like there wasn't a lot of, I mean, like we launched and, you know, like people talked about it, right? Like mm-hmm. I, didn't, I didn't, I didn't need to go on product hunt and beg people to upvote something. You know, yeah. it was like, oh, a new app launched. Yeah. Holy crap, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. It was yeah. news just because it was an app. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So that's really what it was. Yeah. For, so for, and it was a nice design. So we've, we've talked a lot about your journey to profitability with the products. What were some of the biggest struggles along the way? What, what are some of the things that people didn't see as you were building this, as you were doing this? What made it hard? So, history so the the interesting part about profitability for us is probably the last five years where things have gotten interesting because we've always been very profitable like extremely profitable um 35 40 percent margins like doing really well probably higher at some point earlier and i think that the challenge that we ran into is we realized that you do have to like you have to invest back because you, you can't kind of stagnate and i think um what we ran into and where things like our profit margins have dropped pretty significantly over the last three ish years are on their way back up. But, uh, is, you know, you, you do have to invest and you have to reinvest back and you have to think about like my, you know, my thing now is like, I, I know my goal, like my goal is 30%. Like I don't need more than that. I don't definitely don't want less than that. And so like when I hit 30%, it's time to look and say like, okay, where can we invest better? What can we do better? Mm-hmm. Um, and for us, it's always like fit better salaries better for my team it's like my team you know it's not mm-hmm. like i have some magical go to market strategy that i can like put more money into but mm-hmm. yeah but so we really didn't hire at all so we didn't hire we like i said we had no marketing so we had like no kind of 
strategic growth initiatives. That's that that's so dirty. Um, and, and so, <laughs> um, and so like, you know, and so I think like when Beanstalk started to slow down, which it did because, you know, a lot of other competition came into the market and we were basically, if you build it, they will come and, mm-hmm. you know, and not hiring and being really stingy with our profits. And I think that realization that like, no, that's not the right way to go. You have two great products, you have an opportunity to grow them, and you have to be actively, you have a responsibility to actively pursue them if you want them to stay relevant, um, forced us to look at it again and, and and start spending more money. And so I think like the profitability becomes a goal, but I can't, I can't say it's like the goal in and of itself. Like it's, it's the means to, I think, longevity right like mm-hmm. to make sure that we're sustainable and around for a long time but that also means that we have to be thoughtful about reinvesting and making sure that we're thinking about getting what we need to grow the business yeah and so would you say what in terms of what affected your margins was that co- competitors coming in and taking some of your customers you had some churn with uh, beanstalk totally i think less churn and more on the lack like like drops and signups, right? Mm. So the uh, the net new when the the whatever that is, we didn't we weren't losing customers as quickly as we weren't gaining anymore. So mm-hmm. we had built a product that was very heavy on the low end side. So like you know, fifteen dollar a month, twenty five dollar a month, um, and there is really good competition for seven dollars a month or free that came out. You know. Uh, mm-hmm. And also just a shift in the market. Like we were late to the game in some places and, uh, you know, had some brand, you know, in hindsight, right. I can give you mm-hmm. 3000 reasons of why I think like, yeah, you know, it's not, it's, it's slowed down, but, uh, absolutely. You know, we did not see a lot of things. And part of that was just getting comfortable. Like those margins make you real comfortable. The lack mm-hmm. of effectively like trying to grow a product and just sitting there and enjoying this really comfortable, you know, growth in your MRR and you're like, life is good. And we're paying out 10% bonuses every twice a year. You know, like it was, you know, it, mm-hmm. was, it was crazy. Like things were just not. And, yeah. uh, yeah. And then when it stopped, it was like, okay, <laughs> time to be grown ups again. Yeah. And so that's kind of what we have to do. So it sounds like new signups really slowed down. Was this both for Beanstalk and for Postmark? No, just Beanstalk. Postmark has a, to- a totally different story. No, yeah. this was just Beanstalk. But Beanstalk was the biggest for I mean, it, it drove mm-hmm. most of the revenue. Mm-hmm. Postmark didn't become big for a really long time. Interesting. Okay, yeah. so Postmark was more of a slow kind of growth. Yeah, that was our fault. We, it, it, it came in really hot and heavy in the beginning, um, but we had really significant product issues, like especially less feature stuff. The, the issues were infrastructure based like actually the, making the product run well which mm-hmm. forced us to focus so much of our attention on that that we were not able to develop the product itself for a long time so like we launched it came in really hot and heavy and then um as a lot more competition entered the market which is you know good you're validating your market but we were so busy heads down trying to keep everything alive mm-hmm. and so there's like you know we lost customers because like we were down a lot and just having like lots of the foundational issues and spent years just kind of plugging holes and, and, and rebuilding it and making it a strong, you know, product again. And now it's like, it's growing so awesomely. So, you know, it's, it's kind of shifting that. Yeah. I, this totally is, different, yeah. 
this would actually be a good time for, for, to jump ahead to a question I was going to ask later, but I think it's, you've mentioned competition a few times now. And one of my kind of criticisms of, um, of startup culture and even bootstrapping culture is there's sometimes this feeling that, uh, especially to people that are like kind of boosters of those cultures, like you should build your own web app, you should start your own business, is that there's lots of space like that, you know, uh, you can you can build something and, you know, there's 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 so many customers out there. There's enough kind of for everyone and there's enough to go around, etc. And it, it just that never made sense to me because capitalism is completely based on competition. And with most products, if I start using Beanstalk, I've got to stop using something else. I, if my team s- switches to Beanstalk, we're switching off GitHub or we're switching off something else. And so, um, yeah, do you want to talk a little bit about how maybe some misconceptions around competition that you had or you see other folks having? Yeah, I mean, I think the big, I don't, I don't necessarily disagree with the the sentiment because I think that, that on the flip side of that is like, oh my god, there's so many big competitors I can never make, I can never get in. But so much innovation comes from looking at the big competitors, seeing how bloated they are, and seeing how slow they are, and mm-hmm. finding a, a niche. I think the challenge that I run, I run into, or I, I see people running into, is having a realistic expectation. So, like, it is okay to pick a really niche market market and say, I really want to do something special for them mm-hmm. and build a really nice business around that. But being realistic, they're like, I'm picking a very niche market. It's only X number of possible people. It's, you know, there's a market cap and that's okay. Mm-hmm. And so instead of looking at it and saying like, I think project management sucks in all of these huge apps and I'm going to take over the world and be the better project management app, but oh my God, I can't because they're all so big and they have more money. Well, it's like, well, yes, mm-hmm. all of that is true. So like, what are you doing to the world that's going to convince all these people, all that momentum to your point to switch to your much better project management app? Mm-hmm. Is it 10,000 times better? Probably not. Is it, you know, do you need to be that massive? Do you need to replace Jira right now? Is that your first step? Like, it's probably not a good idea. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think, I don't think there's anything wrong with saying, I see a problem in project management, but what problem, who are you solving it for? And like, start small, right? Like start thoughtful mm-hmm. and figure it out. We've always competed always against 500 pound gorillas. Like you, Beanstalk, it's GitHub and Bitbucket and mm-hmm. GitLab, Postmark, SendGrid and, you know, Mailgun bought by Rackspace and Mandrel and MailChimp. I mean, like mm-hmm. always, we are always the tiniest little, but I love that because I'm like, I don't need a lot of money. Like I don't need, I need 10% of the market. Five percent of the market because the market is software development and that's a massive market. Yeah. So like I'm okay with that. Yeah. So, you know what I mean? People ask like, how do you compete? And I'm like, well, I do because I compete for this market, for this piece of it, for this type of user, and I'm very content with that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think a lot of people uh, they set set out the wrong expectations, right? And so then they're really disappointed, and then they don't know what to do. Yeah. Do you think like what is, is it about your, your question? Yeah. What is it about going after that customer? Like you said. Because software development is big, which is, that's actually a good sign right away. There's a lot of money and companies and, um, you know, products in this space called software development. And then if we go down to, uh, you know, 
source code repos and stuff like that, there's this kind of market. And you're, you've said, okay, the gorillas are here, Bitbucket and GitHub. What is it about your customer that makes them seek you out, that makes them a profitable customer? Like, how did you find that customer or how, why do you attract that customer? That's the million dollar question, right? So that's like when you look at conveyors, so we're like building this brand new product. And I don't know what makes us think that we can continually launch products that are successful, but somehow we don't know how to stop ourselves. <laughs> and so we're going to do this again. And we look at it very carefully because we're like, okay, well, it's competing against a lot of, you know, a lot of those same things. And like, what is it? Who do we want to attract? Who are we solving this pain for? And I think what we've learned is like, we aren't going to stop. Like we, we ended up attracting an audience. Usually it's agencies or small ass, but basically people who realize that building software, they get paid for what they ship, not like the method in which they used to do it. Right. Mm -hmm. So if you're an agency or, you know, you're, you're paid by the hour to ship stuff. You're not paid to sit there and mess around and get all day long and figure out how to branch and be in meetings to figure out process and do all this shit. Right. Like that's not what you're paid for. One person pushes to the wrong branch, everything explodes and nobody's paying you to sit there and try to untangle this mess for three days. Right. Mm -hmm. And so we may not invent new tech technologies, but we are very good at taking difficult, annoying things that you don't get paid for and simplifying them. And so that's this very niche audience, right? So conveyor is going to launch and we're not going to let you touch your repository. Like we're not going to let you push directly to your repository, right? Right to the repo. You got to write, let us do it. You have access to it. We're not locking you, but we're going to create a lot of process and workflow to prevent you from yourself and to allow you to focus on what makes you money instead of like, all this other stuff that's like surrounding it, which mm-hmm. means that the person who loves to code in terminal is not going to want to use it. Right. Like I mm-hmm. know that, right. Somebody who uses Linux is not for the most part going to want, and I'm very much okay with that. You know, like, yeah. like there's something really, really comforting. And we're even trying to, we're trying to scale it down even more. We're like, well, who, what types mm-hmm. of agencies, what do they do? Maybe it's craft, right. We're like big fans of craft right now. And so like, and that team's awesome. And, and that audience is really interesting and they have a pain and they have a need and they, they appreciate, what they get paid for, right? They don't, they're not the types of, you know, I don't want to generalize, but we are trying to build it for the people who aren't, who aren't patting themselves on the back because they got themselves out of some tricky Git situation or because mm-hmm. they remembered to create a branch when they want, you know, like that's not what we're building it for people who are patting themselves on the back because they made a lot of money on that client and they delivered something really great and the client's really happy and it was fast and it was on time and whatever, right? Under budget, like that ever happened. And yeah. that, I think that's the thing. So like we know who we attract. We attract people who like Wildbit as a brand, right? Mm-hmm. Like who don't want to work, who don't want to buy from a five hundred pound gorilla. Mm-hmm. I'm okay with that too. So we talk about that, and, you know. That's kind of yeah, thing. I think that's actually yeah. very clear. There's there's a really good lesson in that of, um, because people buy products for all sorts of reasons, and they use products for all sorts of reasons, and often these reasons are not uh, as rational as people would. Uh, admit. So some folks love using GitHub because it is so sophisticated and they just love tweaking things. They love, they actually like the emotional, um, the emotional uh, thing that they get when they fix someone else's issue. So if they're the person in the office that's fixing everyone's issue, it gives them kind of an emotional high of like, I'm the guy that fixes problems. And so if you went to that guy and said, hey, we want you to switch to Bitbucket, he would say, no way. 
and he might not even articulate it or even know that the reason he's pushing up against it is if you could, if we switch to Bitbucket, I'm not going to be the hero anymore. I'm going to lose all this emotional validation. That's the word I was looking for. But you've you are you've identified this customer that isn't trying to get fancy with their process or their ideology. They just want to make money. And that I think that's just a great picture of how you can be in a niche with big competitors and you can still win because there's going to be folks that are like, listen, all I care about is shipping things and making money. And you could put that right on your homepage. We're Wildbet. We help agencies ship things and make money. And we don't, and people who don't want to, you know, get fancy with their process and their ideology. That's such a clear, um, that's such a clear uh, message, you know, in terms of who you are, what kind of products you build, and what kind of customers you want to attract. And I can see right away that those customers would be profitable because <laughs> if you're making them more money um, or you're enabling them to make more money, then it makes sense. Why would they ever leave? Postmark just works, right? Is that, that's, that's the sense I'm getting anyway. Yeah, Postmark just works. Yeah. Yeah. Postmark's funny because Postmark literally just works where people don't log in. Like we can't measure our, um, like, like customer usage, you know, or like happiness by like whether they log in because they never log in. Why do they need to log in? You log into troubleshoot and Postmark yeah. looks at it and forget it. That's good and bad. I think there's probably some bad to that. You know, we're just trying mm-hmm. to say like, hey, remember us? Like, <laughs> you don't wake up one day in two years and you're like, what's this thing that I pay for? I don't even know why I pay for it, right? Like, why did I pick it in the first place? Yeah. But yeah, I mean, Postmark just said it and forget it. Yeah. Developer tools are interesting. And I mean, you know this, but like, you know, we, we've learned a lot over the years about how important it is if you're building a daily use tool, right? Like a daily use developer tool, mm-hmm. not Postmark, but like a Beanstalk, like a conveyor, like a deploy bot. Very much of a lot of that depends on that emotional feeling people have that to your point, like where Mm -hmm. do they get satisfaction because they have to open it and log in and do their work in it every day. And so some people get satisfaction from knowing all the intricacies of how Git works and how to like change things and move things. And and some people really get frustrated in that. Mm -hmm. And so if you give them something that shows them 3 billion options and it lets them get in trouble and all this stuff and they're not going to get an emotionally pleasant, even though it's not your app's fault, like they're not going to be happy. You're not allowing them to get that like fulfillment that they need. Right. Yes. I think that makes a big difference. Yeah. You have to really know that where like postmarks different postmark. Like you make the decision once, yeah. you know, you're like, all right, we're going to pick an infrastructure product. Not everybody has to be madly in love with it. Yeah. It has to work. Yeah. But Beanstalk and Conveyor are different. Yeah. So we've talked a little bit about you wanting to get back to 30% and a little bit about yeah. 30% profit margins and a little bit about um it sounds like the the slowdown was in new like acquisition acquiring new customers have you done like what other things cuz there's a couple levers there right you can reduce your expenses that can right. that can increase your margins or you can increase revenue that can increase your margins what kind of levers are you using to get back to 30% are you focused solely on acquisition yeah. or is there other things too so what dropped profit margins wasn't the beanstalk slowdown. It was our response to it, which was hiring. So what actually dropped profit margins low was when we all sat down as a team and we said like, okay, 
we need to hire what I call like front of the house. Like we, we didn't really have a big front of the house. Pro- we were a team of designers and developers and QA. That's mm-hmm. all we had. We fully product team. And so, and, and one support person, I think at the time. And so basically we're like, okay, we need to invest in what the front of the house, who's helping us actually grow the product. Because if you build it, they will come is not really, it just doesn't, it's, it's much more crowded now, right? It's much mm-hmm. louder. It's much more crowded. It takes a lot more effort to bring the attention outward. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what we started doing is we invested, we started hiring a bunch of people. So we hired a head of growth, which we had never done before. And so we hired not when we were dying and on fire, we hired when we thought what we, we'd need in the next. And so took a big hit on profit margins, took a big hit on salaries for Chris and I, mm-hmm. and basically said like, this is important. This is what's going to get us out. Mm-hmm. And so we took this really big pro- profit sharing went down everything. But as a team, we all agreed like this is this is the only way to maintain the business. Mm-hmm. So that shot it down. And now it's I mean, we've kind of spent there's not really much. To, I, I tell the team like there's not really much fat in what we do. We're all very um, kind of practical about how we spend money and what we do and things like that. So mm-hmm. our levers right now growth on the top end. So we just need to get the products again to be like that capital efficient SaaS business that we all kind of aspire to be building. Yeah. Um, get back to that. Right. So where we are max hired at this point, I think, um, at least till next year. And uh, which means everything now is just increasing our profit margin. So all growth goes towards profits. So uh, mm-hmm. it's a nice place to be. And so we're, we're getting closer. We, we made some good progress this year. And then by next year, we should be definitely at 30%. Yeah. Um, and that's just kind of that. That's the only lever I'm messing with. Expenses. I mean, I don't. My number one expense is salaries. I'm not cutting salaries. Mm-hmm. So after that, you're looking at like software that, mm-hmm. you know, the apps that we pay for. So like on a quarterly basis, I do review and I'm like, who owns this? Why are we paying for it? And somebody's like, oh, shit, I forgot to cancel. I'm like, OK, so we, yeah. you know, we cancel that. Um, and then my second biggest expense is hosting because we run infrastructure products. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's a big expense, but we yeah. managed, we actually sell we own all our own stuff. So that kind of helps with our costs. And so that's kind of it. There's not really much on the expense side. It's all on the top line. Yeah. So you said, especially this past year, you really had to kind of learn some sales and marketing. Um, and some of that's helped. What were some of the things that worked? What are some of the things, uh, some of your kind of successes this past year? Yeah. Uh, so to, I think I would say like, you can see a very direct correlation that, or like a, a shift in the growth rate about two years ago. Okay. Um, about, well, maybe a year and a half, like I'd say like March, April of last year, uh, building up to that. I think one, we had never, we just the act of doing things is really useful. So we just started to do things. Like we started a regular newsletter. We started to blog more. We started to, you know, write better guides and things like that. So that, no, I can't say there was like some specific plan at the time, but just having people to think about that really, really helped. Uh, and this year, uh, in January, we sat down and we kind of looked from a marketing standpoint or kind of, you know, what, what's the next, what are we going to do next standpoint? We read the book Traction. You know, mm-hmm. Have you heard, read that book? Yeah. Yeah. And so we, we did the 19 step or the 19, uh, you know, method process and we sat down as a team and we kind of looked at it and said like there's 19 different ways to hit your next level of traction what hit me with that was that um looking at growth as a kind of 
you know, kind of ramp up plateau, ramp up plateau was really useful because I was like, mm-hmm. okay, that's true, right? Like we probably maxed out word of mouth to some degree to hit our next level of traction. We could probably grow a couple more percent, but like, is that our next kind mm-hmm. of level up? And so uh, we looked at it and said, like, probably not. So like, what is our next level up? And what we decided to do, and I, what I think was so good about that was we decided to do things that would make us happy. So we basically, like, we, you know, everybody was kind of all in on, or it seems to be going all in on content. And it was just never my thing to get excited about like 17 ways to better transactional email. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just, I, I don't know. There's nothing wrong with it. I promise. It's just not me. Right. It's not, mm-hmm. it's not going to get me pumped. It's not going to get me like jumping out of bed in the morning, but we love making personal connections. Like I love meeting customers. It mm-hmm. just, it brings me and the team such energy and excitement when we like talk to people. And so we had hired actually like a, not a salesperson, but somebody who used to be in sales to come in to kind of join the success team, but doesn't really do reactive support. Does a lot of like inbound calls and things like that. We have a phone number now and like he talks to people all day long and it's brilliant. Right. So we're making those connections. And then we started doing like an outbound sales thing, but my, I'm on the receiving end of all those awful outbound sales emails. And mm-hmm. I could never imagine like us being the facilitator. Of that. But I said like, there's, uh, obviously an opportunity to do sales, right? Like that's mm-hmm. a real thing. And so we decided instead to do what we called the creative outbound and basically mail people packages and handwritten notes. We like hand select companies we want to work with horrendously not scalable <laughs> process, but it worked, right? Like we sent these packages, talk to people, make connections. And we started going to conferences, talking to people, making connections, sending entire delegations. We're not just throwing money around. Mm-hmm. We're like going to show up and talk to people and shake their hands. And so that's been working, you know, like just being present, I started speaking more. I, I never did this before until like a, a one of uh, an advisor was like, your job has to be a little bit more external. Like you got to go out there and talk to people. Mm-hmm. So that's helped. So I think like just kind of actively pursuing it, right? Instead yeah. of for years, it was like, oh, we got to build another feature. So when we hit our plateau in Beanstalk, Chris and I got like, we were like bad place emotionally because up until that point, we were just building features. And so like you can't, correlate how I'm going to get out of this with like building features. Like that just doesn't work. Right. Like I, everyone's like, well, how do you get out of this? I don't know. Like build another feature. I obviously know that's not going to help, mm-hmm. but when you don't have troll over the actual way you are growing, mm-hmm. it's a really scary place. So now just being more in control is really helping. Wow. That's, and you've already kind of commented on this, but I just want to ask you again, because so much of the problem is when you're in a plateau is just having an imagination for what's possible. So what was it? Was it just reading traction that helped or was it, were there other things that gave you an imagination for what was possible that made you feel like, okay, we, we can, there is another step. Like I often feel like folks are just like, they're in a plateau. They know they need to grow. They know they need to, you know, increase their profit margins or whatever, but they just can't see any, thing above them there's it's just black so how did you when you were in that emotional distress um were there some things you did to calm yourselves down to get in a place where you could figure that out did you have advisors that were like you know helping lead the way what what was it that got you out of the darkness there uh, the first thing that i think really got us out of the darkness was after well in very practical sense, like Chris took a month off work, went hike Bhutan with his dad. I mean, this was 2010. This is before traction. This is just last year. Mm-hmm. Um, and then 
no, 2012, 12, 10, 10, 2012. Uh, and uh, I guess I'm trying to think. So, uh, that helped from like a physical standpoint, like physical, phys- like emotional standpoint. But I think mm-hmm. what really helped was at some point, you know, we, we have a lot of friends in the industry who run businesses much bigger than ours and, and uh, you know, that we're able to talk to. And um, there was a realization at some point after all this was happening somewhere in like 13, where we were like, why are we doing this? Like we had to ask ourselves the question, like, why are we running a business? Mm-hmm. Um, like what, why? And mm-hmm. then when you realize that, uh, you don't have to grow for the sake of growing that you're running a business for a lot of reasons. And then you're like, okay, well, why do we want to grow? Right. And then there was this very clear, like we want to grow to stay competitive to make sure the team grows. So we can get like all those reasons we wanted to run a business. were going to be a result of getting out of this plateau. However, you know, when I say plateau, like being plateaued from a growth standpoint or started to plateau, like slow, never like actually, but you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. basically plateau. And it was the largest product. We our our decision out of it was not to actually invest in Beanstalk, but it was as a whole like Wildbit was plateauing because Beanstalk was plateauing. But we stood back and said, "What is Wildbit for? Why do we exist? What are we doing this for?" Mm-hmm. And then I was like, "Okay, got it. I get what we have to do now. Let's look at all of our pieces. Right? What pieces? What do we do with this? What do we do with that?" And then slowly, kind of like weaned ourselves out of the out of the darkness. So, yeah. You no, know, it was a scary time. Yeah, I, 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 it's so funny to see the different stages because, again, I think in the beginning, you're just trying to build something that matters, that resonates, that brings in some revenue. And then you get to the point of growth and hopefully profitability. And then there's you know, a plateau there, and then you've got to figure it out again. And depending on your stage, you know, if you're just starting out, you know, you're, you're, the things you're wrestling with are way different than what you might be wrestling with over here. Although what's interesting is the trend in terms of how people kind of level up at each of those stages always seems to come down to personal health, relationships, and then eventually answering the bigger question, which is, why are we doing this? So like at the beginning, I think for me personally, why, why did I start, you know, building products and going independent? It's because I didn't want to work for anyone anymore. So that was just like a, a really kind of short term, like, I don't want to work for anyone anymore. I want to live in a ski town. That, 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 that. Okay. And now you've achieved it. But now I have to say, okay, well, I've achieved that. What is, what's next? Like, why am I doing this? Am I just doing it for, <laughs> you know, what, what's the bigger thing? And so, it seems like the answer for you folks is that you just love your team. Like you want the, t- you want to support the yeah. team. You want to pay them good salaries. You, um, y- and it sounds like you do a lot with the team. Like this isn't a normal, um, I don't know, a, a normal disconnected workplace. It, it, my sense from knowing people that work at Wildbet is that it's a community. Like there's a lot of life sharing, uh, going on there. Is that, yeah, is that right? Uh, yes. I mean, we call ourselves a family. I know we're not supposed to do that. We got lucky. I mean, Wildbit didn't come together, to your point, around a product, right? So there's this like big difference, I think, when you're like a founder or two people and you're like, I have this idea, right? And you're like, okay, now you're rallied. You exist right now because of this idea that's your clue. 
then you add more people who you've sold on this product idea, right? Because that's what they're there to do. And so like slowly that balloons and it's a product that holds all of it in the center. Mm -hmm. And so if that, and and a lot of times the product and the business are the same thing, right? So it's like this one thing that holds it. So if that fails, the thing falls apart. Mm -hmm. But wild it because it didn't start with a single product. The glue is wild bit not any product and so when chris and i really i mean like our reasons for running a business are simple right like we obviously we want to make money right like we want that financial freedom for all those things we want to do things our way we want to be in control of our future we want to have fun and like like what we do right and what we realized was like to do all of that we we needed to build a company that we were really proud of and the only way i know how to build a company is to make sure that it supports the team that's the supports the human beings in it right Mm because the business is not real right like we just invented this thing I call it the beast. And mm-hmm. so like if the beast is like trying to constantly convince you that it is real and that it's important that you're supposed to follow it. But in reality, it's not real. The only thing that's real is the humans, right? So mm-hmm. like, who are the humans? It's me and my team. So then everything in the world I do have to has to be for those humans, right? And so like for, and then that becomes a very simple, like it's very easy to draw the line because I'm like, okay, well, the team's the one that actually works with the customer, not me. Mm-hmm. So then I have to do everything in my power to create this entire support system around on them, right? Make them happy, secure, safe, all of those things so that they go confidently charging forward and making sure the customer is as happy as possible. Yeah. So I focus everything on the, on the team. The team will focus on the customer. They have to put the customer first, but I have to put my team first. Yeah. And that's it. And that's it, right? So that's like everything. Yeah. And that, and that's my happy place. I don't know. I, that's my, that's my secret sauce. I don't know how else, or, or my invis- in, invincibility. Right. Is that a word? Yeah. That's what'll keep us invincible because with them, I can build anything. Mm -hmm. They can all implode. Mm -hmm. Wildbit will rally. We will sit down at the table. We will figure this shit out. We will build another product. But Mm -hmm. like that's, that's what'll keep it around forever. Yeah. I, I just find that perspective so refreshing. Um, thanks a lot for your time, Natalie. We're going to, we've been talking for an hour, so I think this is a good time to end it. Um, but just on that point, I just, the, it is very counter to kind of conventional wisdom of product first, product first, product first. Some teams are process first, process first, process first. Some teams are technology first. And I just love that you guys are people first. Um, and I just think that's, that's an interesting model that people should consider. Maybe you could start with a group of people and do things, you know, really make that sure that group of people is awesome and then they can do anything. They can figure out the product and the process themselves. Um, yeah, so I just, I'm thankful that you're able to kind of share that with us. I think that's really, really awesome. Thanks. So that is my conversation with Natalie. My thanks to her for sharing her collective wisdom from all of those years in the trenches. Go check out what they're doing at wildbit.com. And if you need transactional emails or if you are looking for something like Beanstalk, they have incredible products and also great customer support. I'd also say if you're looking for a job, There's no better company to apply for. They don't open up positions that often, but when they do, it's worth applying. All right, again, megamaker.co slash profit. Go sign up there to get the case studies, and I will see you next time.
podcast hosting is provided by Transistor.fm. They host our MP3 files, generate our RSS feed, provide us with analytics, and help us distribute the show to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. If you want to start your own podcast or you want to switch to Transistor, go to Transistor.fm slash Justin and get 15% off your first year.